Okay, so William, thank you very much for coming on the Lean Musician podcast, number one. Pleasure. (laughs) It's great to have you. I feel uh, very blessed to have you on the podcast because, especially on the first one, because I feel like your work is. We wanted to put you on the first one because your work's kind of at the core of the the way that we're starting to think about music. Me and Tom here at Lean Musician, and um, yeah, just it just felt like the right thing to do. So, for those of you who haven't read your book or know your work i'd love it if you could give us just a a quick kind of summary of who you are what you're up to and yeah what you do yes well of course it's it's a great delight for me to find out a a book that i wrote can reach people in the way that it's reached you and and tom so that's wonderful to hear um i'm a concert pianist i uh, live in texas now i'm from new york originally i'm a university professor and an active performer i've been doing this on the university level for about 38 years. I tried to calculate that before we had our talk today. <laughs> uh, and in recent uh, decades, I've uh, gotten much more actively and seriously involved in the pedagogy side of things. Um, and uh, that's been a thrill, something I hadn't really perhaps anticipated quite that way, which led to the book and to the establishment of my workshops and other kinds of things that you're, that are in a way non-traditional and in some ways not but i found i've been a become a voice for a certain kind of a uh, view especially towards perfectionism and how to n- stay healthy mentally and physically in the face of the kind of quasi perfection we aspire to in music especially classical music uh, that um that's been a privilege for me to find that i've been able to articulate and be heard and be part of the conversation pedagogically about some views that are not quite the accepted sure and we will 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 absolutely get into those right yeah that, that's that's something i'd love to talk about um sure let, let's just go right back to the beginning and about you and when you started music can you can you remember any early memories i mean i, I wish i could bit, remember but... more uh, i guess most people do but but of their very early years but um we had a baby grand piano in our house, and that was a kind of a play thing for me, um, which was nice. Um, and um, I love to talk about my beginnings because I found them to be really germane to everything that followed. The older I get, the more I understand this to be the case. And it was just very lucky, I think, because um, I was three years old and I was a sort of a excitable three-year-old. I wasn't sort of hyperactive in any kind of problematic way, but... Um, my parents were told maybe this little kid needs a kind of an outlet for his energies. But they knew I was musically good. I had a good ear and I could pick out tunes on the piano and stuff like that. Something was going on with me musically. And uh, my mother, I think, happened to just see a little sign in the butcher shop or something like that in our little neighborhood in Queens, New York, where I grew up, saying, you know, music class for three-year-olds. This turned out to be a class in in Eurythmics, Dalcro's Eurythmics, and we can get into that later. Anyway, it's a exciting and brilliantly conceived uh, music approach for any age, really, but it um, certainly has been used most successfully um, with little kids who are, you know, physically in their bodies in a very joyous way, and they love to do playful things, and they love to learn new things. And they're very musical anyway. Anyone who hangs around little three-year-olds knows that so many of them are, if not all, are musically very engaged in this fantastic way, as long as nothing comes along to remove that. So um, uh, so that's it. This seemed to be the kind of thing that would maybe keep me occupied and give me an outlet for my energies. And so off I went to Dalcro's class. So how long did you do those for? Two years. Two years. And then yeah, and I kind it... of remember it. I think, in, I, think I can re- picture the room that it was in and so on. What I do remember um, is how much fun it was. I mean, uh, fun in, very, in a very deep sense uh, because, you know, the essence of Dalcroze, not only does it posit that we can learn all about musical elements, rhythm and pitch and everything else in our whole body, but one of the main ideas about it is that it's playful. It tries to, you set up some games and you try to trick people and you try to be clever and see if they can be clever enough to follow you and all that. So it engages your sense of fun and play and, and, and intelligence too. Mm-hmm. 
in, in which you can do in any age. And so I loved that. And I can still remember this sort of, you know, tingling feeling of excitement waiting for the next little part of the game to come along and see if I could respond. Um, and so what I, and I've thought about this a lot in recent years, and I think what that gave me was so lucky because it gave me the sense that doing challenging things, um, rigorous things in music is nothing but fun and a kind of a thrill and an excitement and a joy. So that was my sort of inoculation in a positive way into what music could be. And and I think what that did, although I wasn't aware at the time, it sort of gave me the sense like anything that comes along in terms of musical learning that isn't joyous and fun and you know exciting, mm. aging, it's something wrong with it. So if I have a teacher who doesn't make me feel that way, something wrong with that teacher or, or an approach or whatever it might be. So it's a great way to get introduced to the idea of of uh, music learning. So I started, uh, you know, piano lessons at five, and then I found that to be very, very easy transition because the Dalcros had, uh, you know, made elements of rhythm and all of this and pitch so familiar to me that learning to read music and play it at the piano was just like a natural extension of all of that. So I always, it, it's hard to give advice about to parents who ask you, you know, about exactly what to do with little kids or about music training. But I find myself feeling safest by saying, start with something that's holistic, like, like Dal Crows or some of the other um, things that are out there, kinder music, music garden, similar approaches that are not about performing or not about an instrument, not about doing it for the parents or anyone else, but just about experience. Right. Right. For sure. So, so after that, you, you started piano lessons and it sounds like that Dalcros and, and those piano lessons were a really good positive foundation, but I'm interested in what you say about how you kind of knew with that, your foundation, you knew when you came across kind of tuition or, you know, a philosophy, other people's philosophies of, of how to, to play and study music that kind of jarred with you. What were, what were some of the later experiences of, of coming up against that? And, and were there any challenges that you had? Well, I, yeah, I mean, I, I, I began playing the piano early and, um, I, seems rather precocious at it in the way that I could play with, you know, flow and maturity, but I wasn't very ambitious and I didn't progress all that much during my younger years. I didn't really have the aspiration to be a concert pianist and I was bored. I mean, with the practicing thing and some of the teachers didn't quite know what to do with me. It wasn't terribly negative, but it wasn't exciting either. And I didn't really know how to solve problems. So, um, I, I, I was lucky about a lot of things, and what uh, what um, uh, really changed it for me was by the time I got into college, I went to university at a at a young age because of the way the school system worked in New York. Sometimes people would be accelerated through the system, so I was only about sixteen when I went to college, um, and uh, it was an unusual situation because. Uh, this was a public university, which at the time is a very fine school in New York City, but it, at the time it was free tuition, which is unusual in the States, to residents of New York City, which meant that they couldn't afford to give us uh, actual lessons in the studio, in performance, even if you were a music major. So I wasn't doing a performance degree. I was doing just a kind of a general music degree, Bachelor of Arts degree, really liberal arts degree at that point, which suited me fine. I didn't really know where all this was leading professionally. And all they did at this university was they, they expected us in an informal way to be doing something with our own, with performing studies on our own, not as part of the university program. And they wanted to hear everybody perform something at the end of each year. You'd go into a room, a kind of a classroom and play or sing a few pieces for the faculty. And that was it. There was no teeth in it. They weren't giving us, giving us a grade or anything, but they knew me by now. I'd been there for a year and kind of knew what I was capable of. And I went in there and played a few nice pieces that classical pieces, Schubert, something else, I forget what, but things that I knew I could always play very pleasingly and make an impression. And, you know, so I played them just fine, very nice, and uh, waited for the accolades to 
<laughs> rained down. Well, that's not ex- at all what happened. They just kind of gave me this funny look and, and said, well, Bill, do you, do you have any plans to learn how to play the piano for real? If those weren't the exact words, it's pretty close. So in other words, what you're doing is not playing the piano for real. It's something else, which is easy for you. What I loved about this, although it was very hard to live through at the moment at the time, what I loved about it, it didn't tell me what I needed to do, and like, oh, you ought to do this, and you should do that. They weren't saying that at all. They were just like holding up a mirror to me saying, what you're doing is not the real thing, and you know that, and, uh, but you make, better make up your mind soon if you want to become a more viable concert pianist, or else just don't bother, which was really a great way to handle me. So I thought, well, I'm intrigued. I wonder what that would be like. And so that's what really turned the corner for me. And I, I, I went to see a teacher who I knew from sort of from my neighborhood. Um, I'd known him for years, but I'd never taken a lesson from him. And uh, so he, his name was Leopold Mittman, and he was Russian and had studied in, in Warsaw and uh, at the conservatory and um, was, you know, doing a very European brand of conservatory private teaching in his house. And uh, he was very astute at how he handled me and uh, listened to me play something and said, okay, here's the situation. Uh, You have facility, but no technique. Mm -hmm. So that's very intriguing. Um, Don't know exactly what that means, but I think you're right. Whatever you're saying has the ring of truth. (laughs) Uh, And at this point, I wasn't defensive at all. I was just like, I just want to find out what people are talking about. Because I think they're right. I, I know enough to know that there's something I totally am not getting here. And uh, so he he said, uh, uh, and I don't know if you know the movie The Karate Kid, but um, yes, it, you know, to me it's brilliant pedagogically, and I show it in my piano pedagogy classes and so on, or part scenes from it. Mm-hmm. And he did a kind of a something much like the master in that movie with me. We kind of made a deal with each other. And uh, uh, it was quite quite wonderful. And uh, he said, yes, you have no technique. But he said, I can, I can transfer to you an understanding of what I mean by a technique. It wouldn't take that long, um, maybe six weeks. But uh, during those six weeks, you won't be able to play very well at all. Everything will be sloppy and out of control. Because that's because you'll still be figuring out something very deep about what it is to play the piano, and after that, you'll you'll get it. Sort of like a breakdown, break you down, so you can totally break me down, and asking me to trust him. Right. How did you feel uh, totally. when he said that? I'm excited. Right. Like, great. Let's do it. I didn't have to think about it twice. And so, so what was that process like? What did you What did you get up to in those well, six weeks? Um, it was a couple of very basic things, and one of the one of the you know, questions that you mentioned to me before we, we connected today, I think is I'm going to deal with now, although it's Great. later in the list, which is, it was something very basic. Like, well, what, what is this technique? Is it something mysterious or what? And he said, I can tell it to you in one sentence. And this probably would apply to any, any genre of performing <clears throat> if you want to do it technically in a healthy and satisfying way. And it would be a sentence, something like this. You have to make a thorough commitment to every note, a physical commitment to every note. It's possible to play the piano, for example, in a very surface way that sounds pretty and nice, but you aren't physically making a kind of complete commitment. Commitment meaning you kind of fall right into it, like you've just dived off a cliff with that amount of trust and letting go and and sensing the bottom of the key. So you're like totally committing to the experience of playing that F sharp or that C or whatever it might be. And uh, this is a completely new idea to me. And uh, never heard of it before, never thought of it. I was trying to make my music sound pretty and pleasing and what it's supposed to be. Never occurred to me that there was a step before that of making a commitment physically to every note, regardless of how loud or soft or anything it was supposed to be. So very interesting. And part of that, there's the other kernel that I have to mention, which I alluded to a second ago, which is in order to thoroughly make a relaxed, free commitment to every note, you have to kind of let go of everything, <laughs> which is where the, which is where the, you're not going to be in control for a while part came in. So 
that meant you're missing the note, you're looking right at it, and you're hitting something else. You're playing in the cracks, or you're fumbling or missing what you meant, which is, once you get used to it, quite exciting and then endlessly intriguing if, you, if you're not upset by it. So I was just ready for all this. I had nothing at stake. No concerts I needed to play. I wasn't playing concerts at that time. So uh, it was great. I was just an open field to just experiment with complete mental and physical curiosity about what is he talking about? And from the very beginning, it just felt so congenial to me and so healthy and great that I didn't need much convincing. That's that's fantastic. I, I'm uh, kind of conscious to not rush on too quickly from that because I know that it's, it's interesting what you say that you were so ready for that at that point and you'd had a really good kind of foundation in your childhood, it sounded like, yeah. some good mentors and stuff like that. For someone who's kind of listening to the podcast and, and kind of doesn't really grok or get that as an idea they kind of listened to what you said there about totally committing to a no and and you did you did unpack it a bit i'd be really interested to to hear your thoughts on it what does it actually mean to totally commit uh, both physically is it it's psychological as well and and also let go can you say anything more on that yeah i mean it's a tricky question and a good question i'm glad you're kind of holding me to it for a minute um uh, and I've had to teach this to lots of people uh, who have not been lucky enough to have a joyous beginning like I described as a little toddler, you know, or an introduction to this idea earlier on in their life. Um, and it takes getting used to, for sure. Uh, it's, I mean, the first step is a kind of a sensing what relaxation feels like in your body, which in itself is a kind of a new thing. And many piano teachers do this because we deal with the, with the, you know, the weight of the arm, we deal with gravity, uh, unlike other instruments where you, you know, push keys down and do different kinds of actions um, or draw a bow across a string or something like that. We, uh, we just sort of can let gravity work for us. And so that means we have to figure out what is it to be relaxed and find out what your arm weighs. Uh, and that's really the first step, which can, is sometimes kind of a big deal. Uh, you know, letting the teacher or someone else just say, let me take your arm and just give it to me and trust me to have it. And uh, if I let go of it, it's going to go flopping down. It might hit something. In other words, you have no control of it. So it's psychological too and physical at that very basic level. And, you know, in order to teach that, I'll have them take my arm and I'll trust them to do anything they want with it. And they see how that works and so on. Um, so that's the first step. What is it to trust it? And what is it to free it? And then, and then it's sort of, what does it feel like to, to, uh, let anything happen when you come to the keyboard? I mean, it's, once you get used to the idea, it's not, it's intriguing. Most people find it fun in a way and, uh, are not too fearful of it. It's just, it's just brand new. Does that mm -hmm, begin to answer mm -hmm. your, your question? It does. It does. Yeah. And I'm sure we'll, we'll touch on it later on as well um so so you've had this you've got this good mentor and you're you're having lessons with him let's fast forward a bit to when you started actually doing this kind of work yourself so teaching others and because it came fairly naturally to you and when did you encounter people who maybe were in need of kind of more understanding in this area well, it's just about all the time. You know, from the, from the beginning I, of my teaching, I, mean, I started teaching at the age of 16. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's basically 99% of, I hate to say that, but I mean, really, it's more or less true. Maybe going maybe 95% of people that I've worked with are grappling with some kind of a how can I say, subtly accumulated tension that comes from trying to control things too much. Blurring the practice process with performing. That's another thing I got from Mitman, which was very mm, sensible to me, which is that practicing something and playing it are very, 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 very different activities. And if you're not clear on how they're different, you'll come into trouble. I would love to hear more about that, actually. It's a question I was going to ask you in a minute. Well, um, in the act of performing, then you bring all your powers of attention and control and um, wanting what you want. You bring that all into play 
at every moment. So you can perform at your very, very best. In practice, you want to unpack all of that because if you're performing all the time, um, here, let me put it another way. There's an analogy that he used, which I, I think still works for me, which is like every time you perform something the way you really want it to be, it's like you're kind of spending a little bit of money out of your bank account in terms of your technique. If you were to perform something five times in a row, just the way you want it to be, by the end of those five times, you've lost a little bit of technique. So every time you spend something out of your bank account by performing something one time, you've got to pay it back in by doing things that are technically very constructive and you know them to be constructive like let me sink into this finger and help it be strong and relax again and remind my wrist how it can be free here and all these things that you know help you because there's a thousand little moments in the course of a piano piece that we need to encourage our body to be technically healthy and strong and it doesn't it'll evaporate if we don't keep doing these things so um Practicing is your chance to make things better, stronger, freer, more automatic and congenial, uh, a sensuous pleasure to do. Performing is when you cash in on all that stuff. And I found this to be a very healthy, healthy division. It's hard to talk about without misspeaking. And uh, I end up saying things I don't quite mean, like, practice, you know, mechanically, or just not at all what I mean, or, you know, I mean, it's, it's, or practice without music, which is not what I mean either. It's not unmusical at all, but it's, it certainly is breaking it down as a craftsman, as a craftsperson to, so that everything, you know, you're doing it some good. And so, um, it's so tempting to want to do too much performing in the practice room. Should we do some? Yeah, occasionally. Sure. Try to see really what you can do with that piece and put all the pieces together. But just make sure that, that you know, you offset that with, you know, five times more of really constructive technical work. So in other words, that's your workshop. And then when you walk on stage, he said, that's when your performance comes together. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, you shouldn't leave your best performance in the practice room. And everything you do on stage is a pale shadow of what you once achieved in the practice room. <laughs> try to do all the preliminary things, you know, that'll make you wonderful and then walk on stage and trust it all to come together. Yeah. I know. really appreciate you making that distinction. It's a, it's a really good one. And I have uh, heard that analogy once or twice before. Good. I'm glad that other people are saying it because it's so, it's, you don't forget it. And it's, uh, I, it's and it's also one of those things that you feel as, as it's just kind of funny analogy that you've come up with or you've heard along the lines and you, and you think that other people, don't think that way. So it's uh, it's gratifying to hear that <laughs> not just you, but Mittman as well. Yeah, I mean, it's so tempting. I mean, that's the thing. It's so tempting. We love the music. We wouldn't be doing this if we didn't love love the music. And and a lot of times, you know, let's say if I'm giving a lesson to a graduate student someplace, somebody I don't know, but I'm just working with them for the first time, and they will tell me, I've I've got these tension problems in my shoulder and in my wrist, and I'm, I'm you know tense in my mind, and I'm thinking maybe you can help me. They'll play something very intelligently and very in a very cultivated way, but I can perceive that their problems are real. And as they have said, and then and then my first question is always, tell me how you tend to work on this. And I usually can predict what they're going to say, which is, well, I remember all the great things that I heard in my lesson about how you can voice the top note just so and make sure that these accompanying notes are very, very, very even and pianissimo and so on. And, the, and then I remember all these wonderful artistic things that we talked about. And then I try to do that very slowly but very carefully every day to make sure, you know, they're, they're trying to pursue the result itself every day. And that just flat doesn't work. It doesn't work. So it's, so for me, this, this kind of makes me think about goals and in a sense, getting our goals mixed up between practice and performance. Would, what, what do you think our goal is in practice as opposed to performance? Okay. This is something I've thought about too a lot, and I think that if there's a, like a overall like sentence like written in the 
air right above your instrument or in your practice room, like that could say, here's the overweening, here's the goal that I have for all my practicing. For many people, unfortunately, that goal is I want everything to sound just the way it's supposed to sound. That to me is not a very fruitful goal. So for me, it's a different thing entirely. My goal is, it's like a question, how can everything that I'm doing feel great? That's mostly it. How can everything feel wonderful? Not just be correct. Correct's not good enough. It has to feel actively great. So it's completely about how it feels to you. Trusting that that will lead to even much more control over your sound and much more of a color palette and much more of an effortless control of dynamics and all the things you want that are refined all comes from how can everything feel great. I'm really interested in what you said about earlier about sensuous pleasure of practice, yep. but also you said the mechanical side of practice in the sense of uh, on working on things and breaking them down. For many people, they'd be uh, kind of at odds with each other. Are they at odds for you? Or how, yeah, how do you I, think I probably shouldn't that? say mechanical. Let's just say neuromuscular. I mean, that'd be a much better way. Um, are they at odds? No, no. I mean, in fact, to me, what the, the joy of coming across a teacher like like Mittman, who helped me understand this, was that I finally knew really what to what to practice for. Uh, you know, I had a goal that I could be intrigued with, and it it it, it didn't have to do with my trying to be expressive all the time or musically successful all the time. It it is quite fun to work on the neuromuscular stuff. I think. Uh, mm -hmm. I think that's uh, it's fun because it feels good. You know, I'm a pianist, so I think about the fingers and their relative, you know, weakness and strength, which is certainly not the same, and uh, all the possible ways we can have tension or release tension. So when I'm playing well, it feels actively wonderful to me. It's a pleasure. I like it physically. Uh, I'm I'm wondering whether we could actually you. I don't know whether you could do this, but sort of. Put, give this as an example, sort of imagine that you are practicing a certain passage and, and describe, because it's one of those things that just no one has access to. We as musicians don't have access to other people's, other musicians' brains. Mm -hmm. And yet, obviously, there is a distinct uh, difference in people's ability to practice. So not just to play their instrument, but, you know, you have people who are very good at practicing and you also have people who are very wasteful and not very good at practicing and spend hours. I myself have also done both of those sure <laughs> and i'm just interested in as, as to getting more of an idea of your your process well uh, I'll, I'll, this might work as an example i mean um we all know that physiologically the what pianists call the fourth finger and string players call the third finger in other words the ring finger next to the pinky is is phys physiologically hampered it's tied to the fingers around it it does never it will never have the independence of other fingers you can barely Lift it if you're holding your other fingers down. And none of that will ever change. So that every passage that has all our fingers involved has a built-in weakness of the fourth finger. So um, it's nice to kind of chase those down and identify them and use some practice to kind of do something about it. So it's, it's a pleasure to come to a, a passage that does that and sort of stop when you get to it and um, and take a moment to just let your whole weight of your arm sink in pleasurably, which feels very therapeutic in your wrist and all up and down, up in your shoulder and everywhere else. When I say arm, I'm really meaning your shoulder too, that whole side of your body. Just trustingly sink in and let that fourth finger hold it all up and rotate around. I'm, I'm <laughs> doing this on my desk while I'm talking to you. No one can see me, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm gesturing to, to show you what I mean. So, uh, yeah. So, um, and so you turn what was a weakness and something you're a little bit edgy about, like, oh, I hope my fourth finger will perform and not let me down. You turn that into a very positive thing where you luxuriate in the feeling of, oh, how, for, how strong my fourth finger can feel. And, uh, as it holds up the weight of my arm, you never can make it really strong, but you can make it more more functional in terms of using getting the arm weight to get into it. That's one example. Or jumping from place to place. If we're uh, uptight about, let's say, you're a string player doing a difficult shift, or a pianist jumping from place to place, which we do a lot. You know, if you 
are nervous about missing it and you're feeling that subtle tension, that's not pleasurable. Or if you're castigating yourself every time you miss because yesterday you got it right. Um, if instead you have this pleasurable feeling of your arm kind of jumping with a nice graceful arc from place to place in a generous way, uh, that's fun to do. That feels nice. And uh, you, you have to trust your body to, yeah, I may miss it two or three times, but then without your changing what you're doing at all, it, be it begins to find it. Your body begins to find it. It loves to learn this way. So I hope those are maybe more vivid examples of what I'm talking about. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. It is. One of the things I find, and I, I know in my conversations with other musicians that they find, is that when when you kind of get into this place of of kind of relaxed practice, and you're not performing, you've kind of you've made that distinction between them both. There seems to be, and I'm sure there is forever and ever, an abundance of things that you could work on um, at any one time. And you can also, it's kind of without sounding pretentious, it's kind of fractal in the sense that the deeper you go with this small thing, the bigger it gets. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So so how do you kind of filter or prioritize and what's your advice to students or just does it just depend on the circumstances? Well, this is where the intelligence comes into practicing. It takes an intelligent person to figure out what's my next challenge? How can I define it? What would be a smart thing for me to do in the next five minutes? Is it these two notes? Is it these 12 measures? Is it this left hand? What is it? And you'll know because um, it's a kind of gestalt idea, like the thing that needs to emerge will emerge. You'll know if you're paying attention what feels a little insecure or a little bit tense or where you were faking it a little bit. Or you'll know. And, then, and then, uh, then it's just being smart about how to set up your little fractal moment, your little well-defined piece of it and do that. So um, uh, I, I don't think that's anything to be overly concerned about. Once you're uh, awake to that's, that that's your job, uh, carrying it out, I don't think is all that, all that tricky. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I prefer that to saying, I'm going to play this practice, this passage 10 times perfectly, and each time I'm going to move, a, you know, a penny from the left side of the piano to the right. And if I mess up, I have to start all over again. There, there's actually a place for, even for that in practicing. If there's something you right. just cannot get the, get the accuracy and you have to do that. Sure, there's a place for everything in practicing. But, um, uh, but primarily, no, I think the most productive practicing is, is uh, constantly redefining what you're doing. So it's mentally quite... Uh, absorbing and actually a bit taxing. I find I can't do it for more than a couple of hours, three hours or so. I mean, I could keep on playing, but my mind would get a little, little worn out. Right. Yeah. Uh, so, um, uh, it all comes from this kind of, first of all, knowing as a kind of fundamental way, here's how I want, here's how I understand great feeling playing to feel whether it's singing a note if you're a singer this is what it feels like to sing when it feels great and this is what it feels like to play the cello when it feels great you have to have a kind of a ur experience that you can come back to and say i'm comparing everything to this right that's um, great yeah and, and then you'll know what you're about because uh you know then any moments that don't resemble that in some way or you can't quickly find some of that ur experience in it that's some place where you want to drill down and you want to you want to find something, something more. So it, it 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 guides itself in that way. We can't do this kind of practicing until we figured out what does it mean for something to feel great. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting to hear. Um, I'd love love to move on to performance now. Sure, because you're a performer and have been your whole life. And the people often talk about just uh, kind of spellbinding performances and that how the, the person was really in the zone. That's often from a, an audience perspective, but people, high level performers talk about being in the zone themselves. What, what does that mean to you? Or is it kind of just a, a vague, a vague concept? Well, I think, no, it's a very fruitful concept and I love all the ideas, the, the names that have been come up with to describe something like uh, being in the zone or, um, I, I very much like the whole flow idea that's, as that's been defined. 
too. I mean, there are several aspects to this. One has to do with with practicing before we get into performing. You know, practicing itself. When you're doing the kind of work that I've been talking about, where you are allowing yourself to be challenged and inviting risk, and all of that, that's very engaging to the mind and body. And so it, it's kind of a blissful activity, really. Uh, I find, and that is a functional kind of a flow to be in, where you're. You know what I mean? Your your challenges are just a little bit beyond where you're comfortable, and that's kind of great. So that's one thing that really I, I, I subscribe to that whole formulation completely. I think that that's great. Now, and when it comes to performing, it's very complex. It's very unpredictable, and it's very uh, thrilling. I mean, this is something where you really feel like you're truly alive when you're performing. Um, uh, I feel like it's a kind of altered state. Uh, we never know exactly in what way it's going to be altered. That's one of the things that's exciting about it. Can go <laughs> in any direction. And no matter how experienced you are, that's still true. Um, so you have to kind of in, in, invite that. That's one of the reasons, by the way, why we want to do a kind of a overlearning in the practice room in terms of technique so that we've got a comfortable margin for wherever the performing moment will take us. So this um, altered state, um, it, it, it's a flow that, uh, it's an experience that um, I, my own approach to it has everything to do with the audience and the fact that the audience is there. The fact that we feel altered comes from the fact that people are listening and they're not there in the practice room. And in this very primitive human experience level, it makes a big difference to us, as we all know, if people are listening and it's an official kind of a performance. The stakes are high and so on, and it can be terrifying. But also, we can open up to that and say, well, people are listening, so maybe if I embrace that as part of what's happening here and let that be part of this altered experience, the fact that it's not just me doing something and hoping it's okay or goes well, but it's a lot of people together psychologically right now in this tacit community that we're sharing. And I'm the one that's doing something to engender a kind of mutual communication. And so, um, that's how I like to think of this altered state and, and the um, zone that I uh, love to find myself in when it happens in performance. The other thing about performing that I just like to, like to talk about, because I think this, yeah. this was a discovery that I made during those same college years when so much of, so much of this became clear, um, to me and, and was inspiring to me um, was when I first had an experience, a chance to play uh, as a soloist with orchestra as a winner of a competition. I'd never done this before and it was in a big hall with a big audience and uh, you know it was quite overwhelming to me and I, it took me quite a while to kind of get into this situation and find myself there and not feel kind of frozen. Mm -hmm. um, but when that did happen, later on in the evening and I was playing, you know, a sort of favorite passage of mine. It was a cadenza in the Rimsky-Korsakov concerto. Um, music I really loved and I, I knew that I knew how to play it meaningfully and all that. Um, I made this discovery, uh, which no one had spoken to me about, so I felt it was one of those kind of pure things for me, which was that I really felt something happened that was inspiring, which was that this music that I knew so well suddenly took on a level of meaning that I had not thought about. Like now, like now I finally understand what it means, which I couldn't in the practice room. I think this is what my teacher had been talking about. Why do I understand now? Because those 2,000 people are there, and I can feel their attention, which initially was scaring me when I started the evening, and now it's like, there's this sharing going on. And, I, and they're informing me tacitly about something about what this music really means as a human expression. So it's like this sort of circuit, what I call a circuit of meaning. And I've tried to unpack this philosophically in different ways. It's very tricky. But it's also very tangible. And I think people probably know what I'm talking about. People have been part of that circuit, either on stage or in the audience, 
or whatever. So I think this is true for any performer, any amateur player just doing it for fun and a little bit scared about what is it like to play a performance. If you open your mind to the fact like it's not just about will I do well and survive and all that, but that's kind of narcissistic really. But instead of that, what if it, what will happen when I share this music that I know so well and, and believe in and love with other people? What will happen when we're tacitly sharing it in a room and in a given moment, how might the meaning of it expand into something new? And anyone can experience that. Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you. Um, we're getting close to wrapping up now. Um, there was one kind of fundamental question I wanted to touch on, which is kind of ties in with the, the title of your book, which for those mm. of you who, if we, I can't remember whether we've mentioned it yet, the, for those of you who haven't read it, it's called the perfect wrong note. And um, I'll link to it in the, in the show notes, but We've all heard about, um, you know, we should embrace mistakes and things like that. And we've kind of touched on this, but your kind of your book takes it to a whole new level. And I'm interested as to to how you have thought about mistakes over the years and how this has developed. And well, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm delighted that you feel like that it goes a little bit deeper. I hope that it does. Um, I've had to figure out a lot about how to try to talk about this because when I first gave talks about this, I know I wasn't doing a good enough job because people thought that I was saying, don't fret if you make a mistake. It's not a big deal. The world's still spinning and the sun will rise tomorrow. (laughs) You know, Babe Ruth, you know, was a big slugger in baseball, but he hit a lot. He struck out a lot too. And, you know, that's not my message at all. So, um, uh, what I what I'm trying to say, and let me say once again, this is not new with me. This was a philosophy that I was taught. It goes all the way back to my, my teacher Leopold Mitman was a student of a student of Frederick Chopin. So I mean, a lot of this pianistic approach and instrumental approach has been out there for generations. Anyway, I'm just the inheritor of it. But. Um, uh, it's so it's not just forgiving ourselves and saying let me try again it's totally embracing the mistake and saying what's the information in that mistake because that's probably the best information i'm going to get it's going to save me a lot of time if i can really find out what it's telling me and so uh that the more we get into it is intriguing and interesting and a very objective experience when it's which in itself is psychologically healthy we let go of all the you know success and failure dichotomy, which is not how we have to see it at all. I wish we had another word beside mistake, you know, uh, unexpected occurrence or something like that. I mean, that's really all that it is. Something happens that isn't what we expected, period. So then it's like, okay, that's surprising. I wonder what that's about. And uh, that's all. And then looking into it with, with a childlike but very focused curiosity about, I wonder what that could be. Regardless of what I played yesterday or a thousand times before, this is what's happening now. So um, I, I think that's, I hope that maybe says something about it, Jack, in terms of your question. And, and I, I, as I say, it's a very fundamentally, it's a, it's a seeking of some kind of real truth in the practice room uh without an ego attachment and that in itself to me is an extremely healthy thing to be doing on a daily basis mm-hmm. on every level that word ego is an interesting one it's often like used in in lots of different ways in different contexts how do you view it in regards to music and practice and performance because i think it's an important one for musicians and particularly with regards to what you're talking about which is being authentic and and honest in the practice room well, it's a it's a slippery word, and I'm probably using it imprecisely. I mean, it has you know very precise definitions and so on. But but um, I don't know. It's it, again. It's 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 perhaps it's the um, it's the sea change between the the practice room world and the stage world. Uh, in the practice room, I think we want to be very ego less as much as we can, in the sense that we're noticing moment to moment. The, the isness of what's happening outside of us, what's what's really happening with my body, what's really happening with the nose, regardless of what I wish it to be. So that's a very nice, just like just like a sitting meditation or anything else. It's like a kind of meditation where you let go of of um, ego controls of your processes. And then on 
when you're performing, then, you know, each one of us performs really like no one else. We have our own self that becomes part of the, part of the equation. And I think it's a, it's a joy to, to bring that into it and let our own feelings uniquely uh, and thoughts interact with the musical stimulus. Uh, not, in, not, you know, copying anyone else's performance or doing what teachers have said, but, you know, bringing our own thing to it. But uh, with the sense of not only expressing our own self, but, um, as I said before, uh, offering that into this beautiful, uh, almost sacred space of having listeners there to be part of it too. Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you. No, that's really, that's really helpful. Um, so yeah, we're kind of wrapping up now. There's just a, a few questions I kind of had, to, um, kind of developing these questions for the podcasts. Some of them might be cheesy, but, uh, we ask all the people <laughs> at the end. Um, I guess the first one was really about you've, you've done music your whole life and, Often I think that disciplines that we, we spend a lot of time with and we care a lot about, they often teach us more about or as much about life as they do the practice itself. Do you see what I mean? And, and I'm kind of wondering if there's any great lessons that you feel that music has helped you with or, or taught you about. Well, I guess really we've touched on a lot of these things already. Um, objectivity, in the way I've described, uh, a kind of acceptance mindfulness i know it's an overused world word but i think it's lovely mindfulness of what's happening every moment and 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 i would add to that a kind of resourcefulness um i think that's one of the reasons why people who've been trained in music and done su some successful things in it are very often snapped up by other companies in other fields saying we'll train you to you know learn this software or whatever to knowing, I think people intuit that there's also just kind of a resourcefulness and a problem solving um, acumen that you develop from uh, from doing rigorous music on a high level or really challenging yourself. So those are the, I guess would be the main, the main things. Mm -hmm. Great. And you, you've had a lot of teachers, some good mentors. Are there any standout pieces of advice that they've they've given you over the years? You've obviously mentioned a few, particularly that quote from Mittman. But is there anything else that that comes comes to mind? No, most of the advice I got um, from about pragmatic things and artistic things and how they come together came from from Mittman. I've already mentioned most of those. The other person that I should say who influenced me and inspired me and opened up a vista for me was Eloise Ristad, who wrote this book, um, A Soprano on Her Head, um, R-I-S-T-A-D, Eloise Ristad. Um, her work with musicians uh, was the other piece in, in what I've done pedagogically, how you can do workshops where you ask people to do outrageous things or new things or free things or trust each other, uh, become playful again, and combine that with with um, the uh, exciting rigors of doing music on a high level. So um, I'd like to mention her name too, in terms of you know the composite of uh, people who've influenced me in a in a what I think is a fortunate way. Great, thank you. Well, thank you, William, very much for for coming on the podcast today. It's, it's been. It's been really good. I really appreciate you uh, being the first one. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> great pleasure and honor for me too, Jack. Thank you so, so very much. Is there any, is there any other thoughts or uh, last things that you want to say? Um, no, uh, but you hinted at something in one of your questions, which we should touch on very briefly, which is that the sure. science, and I'm not an expert on this, but I think oh, I'm yeah, right. I forgot that one. The brain science, especially neuroscience, which is, you know, the big new field is I think beginning to support a lot of the things we've talked about um, that when you're taking risks with your process and the brain is intrigued with that, you know, appropriate risks that, you know, not doing the safe, tried and true, but challenging yourself in a way that's exciting. The brain likes it. It's energized. It wants to remember that experience and, you know, perhaps even produce more myelin to, to protect it with the nerve pathways. I'm, I don't really know what I'm talking about when I say that, but I mean, there's, there's writing about this and studies about this kind of things that, that what they're calling deliberate practice or focused practice 
um, uh, not just routine mind numbing practice, but really engaged practicing problem solving is uh, mm. neurologically exciting. Daniel and, Coyle talks about it uh, in yes, his book. Actually, I'll link I mean, to that. I can't, I can't assess the you know the worthiness of those claims, but that's what I'm talking about. And um, and I think other things like that are happening too. So so it could be that the things that have been passed down over the generations that felt right to people on every level. And I'm, I really believe this heartily. Yeah. The things that have felt right and most productive will turn out to be borne out by the science. Mm-hmm. You, you, you asked me something about enjoyment in, in your, your notes. And I've been doing some research uh, using motion capture technology and brain scanning and things like that with a team of other people. Um, to assess what happens when you invite a pianist to just not try not try to play so correctly at this moment, but just think about enjoying yourself when you play the same piece. What happens if we don't define what that means? What are the observable things they might do differently when they just, quote, enjoy themselves? And uh, so this is of great interest to me to see if there's something as loose-sounding as that can actually have measurable and scientific uh, benefits. And is the, the research still going on at the moment? Yeah, well, um, we've done a kind of a um, pilot study, which we've been um, writing up and getting those articles published, and it remains to be seen if we'll be doing a more extended study on it. But uh, I think this is the first time the concept of enjoyment has been used as a variable in these kind of scientific studies. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, I, I've seen some videos on that, actually, so I will, I'll link to that as well. Yeah. That's great. So, so no, that's it. So, uh, but it, yeah, it's so, been really. So you're working on that. Is there any what What else is next for you? What What else are you up to at the moment? Well, I don't know when it will happen, but I would like to um, eventually be able to produce a, a new edition of the Perfect Wrong Note, which would include um, videos, so that I could show the things that I'm pantomiming here in my house, <laughs> exit, and you can't see. Uh, and just show people what I mean, because there's no way that a book, or even the words we're saying today, can quite convey, you know, the physicality of the kind of things I'm talking about. Sure. So I'd love to be able to achieve that, so I can, you know, just find a way to to make this message ever clearer and more and more vivid. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let us know when that when that's sure. coming. Yeah, absolutely. Really interested. Great. Well, thanks again very much. Thank you. Great yeah. pleasure. Yes. Mm-hmm. All right, bye. bye.